This is Tracing Architecture, and I'm one of your hosts, Sean Swisher. I'm one of your hosts as well, Matt Tian. Today we have another special episode teasing this year's AIA Arizona State Conference. As a reminder, this year's conference is on October 14th at Warehouse 215 in Phoenix, Arizona, and the theme is Inspire, where we're looking to the future and innovations of our industry. For this episode, we sat down with the members who will be interviewing this year's speakers to get to know them better and to learn a little more about what we'll hear at the conference. First, we sat down with Stephanie Lynn, Dean of the School of Architecture in Arcosante, Arizona, Principal of Present Forms and co-founder of the Design Collective Office 3, who will be speaking with Phnom Bagley, futurist and founding partner and creative director of nonfiction in San Francisco. Stephanie, welcome to our podcast, Tracing Architecture. Could you please give us a short introduction about yourself? What would you like our listeners to know about you? Sure. Thank you for having me. I'm the dean and a core faculty member at the School of Architecture. As you know, it's the school that was founded by Frank Lloyd Wright and is now located in Arcosanti and Cosanti, which are respectively in near Mayer, Arizona and Paradise Valley, Arizona. So I lead a small and growing architecture program. We offer an MARC degree, and I oversee academics, programming, community life. And I, I also stay at Arcosanti for periods of time and get immersed in, in this kind of expansive learning environment with our students and faculty. I also have a practice called Present Forms. It's a practice that I've been leading since 2017. It's a kind of open, collaborative practice, and we do design work ranging from buildings to furniture to products, exhibition, and and installation. So it's quite a wide-ranging set of outputs, and it's very process-oriented, materials-based, even media-driven. A lot of the projects look at how common materials and methods can tell stories about our environment, our digital culture, the way that we interact and relate to our materials. Finally, I'm, I'm a member of a design collective called Office 3. It's a, as much of a practice as it is a platform for conversation, and it's based out of Boston, New York, and San Francisco with Sean Canty and Ryan Gollenberg. We're all educators. We're also all designers. So we do have quite a, a rich exchange and we do projects as well. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So do you take any of that from those two different design groups into your work at Arcosanti as well? Very much so. I mean, it's not explicitly addressed, but I think there is a collaborative way of working that Sean, Ryan, and I have developed that is quite fluid and open-ended and not based so much on an individual, but being accountable to a a larger group and the kind of ideas, resources, and products that can be exchanged through this way of working. That's obviously not a new thing (laughs) in architecture, but I think there is this kind of movement towards a a more collaborative mode of practice, um, especially among young designers who need to share resources and can really benefit from doing that, especially for larger projects. Right. Especially when you're going up in competition against larger firms too. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. 
yeah, there is something special too about Arcosanti and the just the environment out there and the the landscape alone. That, oh, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yep. So for the 2022 AIA Arizona State Conference, you'll be interviewing Phnom Bagley of Nonfiction in San Francisco. Uh, could you tell us more about the connection you share with Phnom? Yeah, I've been really diving into her work recently. It's just such an impressive practice, really working with some innovative and cutting-edge technologies dedicated to sustainability, health, and ranging from the, the smallest intervention of a product to larger ideas that are more infrastructural. I'm, I'm really inspired by that work, and as well as the, the process that's embedded in the development of the work that they do. That could be one way in which we connect the kind of process-driven development, working through ideas, through iteration, sketching, lots and lots of versions, prototyping, and um, also the wide use of, of media in her work that I can kind of relate to as well. Yeah, it seems like that, especially the different scales, because you mentioned in your own work, doing the full-scale project down to product and even furniture, having that variety, kind of breaking out of a traditional architectural practice. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. Yes, I would say that all work is extremely architectural, whether it's applied at the scale of like a product, a domestic product, to a chair that's made out of recycled plastic, to a community building that I'm working on right now in upstate New York. There's a really consistent lens that is applied to all scales. And I also have this tendency of never finishing a project either. A lot of projects kind of get left at the prototyping stage or that's how I think about it. It gets picked up later on or in a totally different format or scale down the line. And I enjoy letting these loose ends exist and returning to them months or even years later. I think that's interesting because it kind of ties in with the theme of this year's conference, but you talk about Inspire and you know having some of those old prototypes around where you're just kind of exploring ideas and looking for inspiration that you don't, it doesn't necessarily have to be a finished piece. But with that, with the Inspire as the theme, what does that mean to you with your work? It's obviously a, a creative word. It points towards a creative act that has both happened and is yet to come as well. It's at this threshold of something that is to be fully materialized or or that will be fully materialized. I think it's also interesting that it implies an exchange and acknowledgement of other factors, players, environments, communities, and cultures that inform design decisions and form the context for those. It's a word that implies an exchange and an interaction and that the designer is always in conversation with something else. Right. Well, and especially when you speak to like the iterative processes, it is an ongoing conversation. You're kind of exploring something and the next step of it, just seeing where things go. So it's interesting that you're doing that at different scales as well. Yeah. What kind of new ideas or innovations are you inspired by and working through right now? I wouldn't say it's, it's new, but I'm happy to, sort of expand on this experimental living situation that I'm in right now at, at Arcosanti. So um, part of that's new for you, but it's also new for the entire school, correct? It's been there for about a year and a half it's at Arcosanti? Yeah, just over two years at this point. Okay. Um, I've been with the school for just over a year and a half. The school has always maintained a communal 
living environment where students and faculty, or a handful of faculty at least, would be on site. You know, there's the formal curriculum, but there's also a co-curriculum, which is as important as academics. There's weekly dinners and weekly tasks that students fulfill together. It's a totally new thing for me. I've been teaching for a while, but to be kind of immersed in this lifestyle that goes beyond the classroom and goes beyond typical educational formats, I think that's that's been really inspiring for me. So it's it's not new, but I think it's a model and a kind of ethic for how architects and designers must approach design problems uh, with sure. the urgency today. Like, how do we become more resilient? What are the lifestyle changes that need to happen? What are the perceptual shifts that need to happen that help us understand design problems that are not just futuristic, but also future oriented? And, and I just want to circle back to Phnom's work. And I just want to emphasize like how future oriented that work is because it's, you know, it's anticipating problems. It's anticipating new lifestyles, new ways of achieving and interacting with our environments. But hopefully also in a positive way, not just a let's go colonize Mars and get off of planet Earth. It's it's looking for how we can work with the planet in the future that we want to create. Absolutely. Yeah. The school is in a kind of a new iteration. There's been this opportunity to rethink the curriculum, rethink the problems that students are engaging with in the design studio, also in practice, as the, the school offers a number of professional practice projects that, um, that are open to students to work on. What is kind of your vision for the School of Architecture? Where are you looking to take things? I've had the opportunity to lead the first year studio, which is kind of where things start, of course. And this year, students have been really diving into researching materials that are common in the Southwest, um, like mud, clay, wood, stone, materials that we are all very familiar with, but researching their embodied processes of extraction of labor, assembly, reuse, upcycling, and thinking about how we can use these materials towards more circular economies. And I would say this is <laughs> this is not the typical way that a first-year studio will start in an MR program, but I think it, you know, it's really activated the imaginations of the students that we have this year, and we're really diving into a material-based approach to a design studio. Does that carry forward from first year into later years as people go through the program, or is that more specific to the first year studio? Yes, yes. I think material experimentation and material knowledge is something that is a through line throughout the curriculum. Studios at the School of Architecture will increasingly build up towards the, the final thesis project, which which is called the Shelter Project. It's a tradition that has existed at the school since the 1930s, recently was formalized before my time to be the final capstone thesis project for students. Students in the spring semester of their second year, they start engaging in a research semester. It's a pre-thesis and in their last two semesters or their, their third year, 
they implement that research, produce a small structure that serves as a proof of concept for larger speculations, and then they build it with their own hands and with the help of others and with the help of our construction mentor, Lloyd Natoff, who also happens to be the, the great-grandson of Frank Lloyd Wright. It's a curriculum that really has you know, hands-on knowledge, material, research, and experimentation just embedded throughout. So what better way to dive into that than start with a first-year studio? Sure. <laughs> Especially when you're literally diving into it and getting your hands dirty at the end, building the project. Just yes. very unique to the School of Architecture, I think. So there are fantastic. a lot of ways and places <laughs> on campus where you can get, get your hands real dirty. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's fantastic. Does your work with the studios that you do with Office 3 and, sorry, Present Forms, does that inspire kind of this work with material too? Or is there anything you're taking from this kind of material studies into your work with those firms? I would say that, you know, there's been a pretty dynamic and productive exchange between Present Forms and this new project that I have of leading the school. This past spring, we hosted a, an exhibition called Organic and invited 10 different architects from Arizona, but also across the country. We also had a Canadian firm as well as a firm from Mexico participate. And each firm interpreted the word organic, which in architecture has taken on a loaded uh, and longstanding Absolutely. <laughs> yes. But the approach to this exhibition was not to kind of narrow in on what the correct definition of organic is, but to really unlock what it could mean and connect it to new possible meanings that address today's most urgent social and environmental problems. A number of those projects, as well as the exhibition design, dealt with the use of scrap materials and turning scrap or disposed materials into new architectural expressions. And that was something that was recurring as a response, which was really interesting. So to answer your question, the work in my practice has really been influenced by, you know, being in the Southwest for the past year and a half, um, moving between New York and Arizona. The work of present forms since its conception, has been inspired by media studies and incorporating a wide range of digital media into our work. This has informed a couple of classes that I've taught at the School of Architecture where students will, in one class, they, they looked at techniques of animation and animating landscape processes, processes that are implicated in the effects of climate change. So students learn to model dust storms and erosion and we didn't quite get to lichen growth, but that was <laughs> one of the that was one of the ideas. So thinking about how digital media that we use in architecture, how do we kind of refine those processes to also communicate other issues that architecture must address? So this combination of media and architecture, it's something that has kind of continued through the work and being in this extremely present environment in the high desert has undoubtedly had a strong impact. It's interesting too, thinking of media almost as material and how that can be viewed differently as well. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that takes me to the other class that I 
that I taught last semester, it grew out of this workshop that I did at Syracuse University with a a group of students, but it involved one-to-one image-based installations that kind of blurred the distinction between physical objects and then their representation. And in some cases, you couldn't really tell the difference between what was printed and what was real. So really probing this relationship between material and its representation as another material in itself, this turned into a a full semester's class where students looked at the imaging of the landscape as a starting point for this research. And students produced these really kind of wild and psychedelic (laughs) one-to-one installations outside in the landscape where they kind of paired a technique and imaging with a kind of time-based time-based research on a landscape process. So you'd be able to kind of read that duration between the image and the actual landscape. So just the um, reality of it, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And be able to kind of, um, yeah, to read these multiple states of a, of a landscape process within this one-to-one installation. I'm not sure if that really made sense, but hopefully. I think it's fascinating. I think it's an interesting (laughs) topic to kind of dive more into. So (laughs) I would love to show you images. I think it's better communicated that way. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Those are just some examples of how teaching and practice has really started to merge for me. I'm excited to see where it goes. I guess lastly, with the conference, what are you hoping people take away from it? with the theme of Inspire or with your work or Phnom's work or just in general? Well, I think the the title of the conference really has a lot of power in how participants can, can think about it. As I mentioned before, this state of something yet to come, something that can be anticipated, something that is multiple in, in nature. And I'll just circle back to Phnom's work and point out the kind of multidisciplinary nature of her work. Um, She works between architecture and industrial design with consultants from a wide range of backgrounds. And I I think this kind of openness to architecture being informed by so many other types of practices. My practice is extremely inspired by artistic methods. And and I really admire nonfiction's work in, in the way that they they seriously engage scientists and engineers and work with them to produce something that is final and it it is materialized and it, it goes to market. And yeah. you know, that's where you can really make a difference. That's where you really can engage the public. These are values that are really embedded in the upcoming conference, and I hope people will be inspired by it. Next, we'll be hearing from Ron Rael, designer, architect, artist, and professor at UC Berkeley. Together with his partner, Virginia Sanfratello, Ron's work often explores the intersection of activism and architecture. Ron will be one of this year's keynote speakers at the conference, as well as interviewing Joseph Kunkel of Mass Design Group. At Mass, Joseph is the director of Sustainable Native Communities Design Lab in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Ron, thanks for joining us today. Why don't we start with, why don't you just give a little bit of an introduction to our listeners about who you are and what you want them to know about you? Well, my name is Ronald Rael, and I am a professor at the University of California, Berkeley. 
in the Department of Architecture. I'm also the chair of the Department of Art Practice at Berkeley. And in that way, my work moves between the worlds of art and architecture. And I run a studio, Rail Studio. I also have collaborations with many people. I was previously with Studio Rail San Fratello. And some of the projects there in Arizona are collaborations with Border Architecture Laboratory. And so I work between academia and practice and theory and writing. And so I have kind of diverse interests and outlets for those interests. One of those outputs is currently on display at the ASU Art Museum here in Tempe. And it's an exhibit of a few of your works, uh, including with that Border Architecture Lab group. If you could just give a little bit of a background about all of that work regarding the border wall and giving people a little bit of a hint of where you come from in approaching that work and, and what you think its impact has been and will be. The background to that work that's at the ASU Art Museum uh, is related to a several decades long exploration of the borderlands and also the question, where are the borderlands? We might narrowly define them to be the U.S.-Mexico border, but the consequences of a shifting border historically have left an impact across much of the United States and Mexico. And more specifically, I come from Southern Colorado, and I currently also live in Northern California, which were both the northernmost frontiers of the Mexican Republic prior to the Mexican-American War. And so for me, it's very interesting to think about the idea of an expanded borderlands and what has happened over the course of time since 1848 in those expanded borderlands that have changed the nature of space and ecology and people and culture. So I've been very interested in studying that, looking at it, and seeing that as a productive laboratory for design and for thinking how to make design responses in those landscapes and to tell the story of those landscapes. So one particular endeavor that I embarked on in about 2009 was to look at the construction of the U.S.-Mexico border wall when it began. And it began around 2006, and I was privy to its construction, doing a lot of work in Marfa, Texas at that time, and watching its construction, also seeing the impacts that the construction of that wall had on people, on wildlife, on ecologies, on cities, and to acknowledge that an architect wasn't involved in the largest construction project in the 21st century in the United States. And so I began to document an account of that border wall. And it's interesting to think about what that wall is doing today in the borderlands, but also to think about how prior to the Mexican-American War, when the border existed in lands that are now in the United States, we had very similar issues that were occurring. We had issues of a militarization of the border and that occurred prior to the Mexican-American War and was part of the reinforcement to enable that war to occur. We saw that there was child separation occurring at that time historically, and we saw that there was indigenous slavery happening. And so when we think about some pressing issues of the U.S.-Mexico border today, we find there are those same issues present. There's child separation, there's a militarization of that wall, and there are highly unfair labor practices that expose indigenous people 
to very traumatic life circumstances in many ways. And so in about 2009, I began to document a, what I call a biography of the wall and to tell the stories of the border wall and its consequences as a kind of illustrated set of short stories. And so those led to many different illustrations and models that have brought attention to those issues. And what we see at the ASU Art Museum today are two projects. Well, there are actually several projects there, but two major installations and other smaller projects that are a continued part of telling those stories. And in that museum, in the two main galleries, in one gallery, there's a project called House United. And House United is an installation that takes 10,000 pounds of steel that was meant for wall construction there in Arizona. And after the Biden administration took over, wall construction was stopped and that material was left fallow. So that material was smuggled into the museum in the form of a structure that can bring people together. It's, it's uniting, you can occupy underneath it. And we plan for some really interesting things to happen with that House United after the installation. In the other gallery is a project called House Divided. And that tells the story of division and the proximities. And it's a house that is essentially two halves of two different houses. One house, which is a house that you may find in Mexico, and one house that you may find in the United States. And we also brought to the gallery two worlds in which you can really get a sense of a very real set of house conditions, both a kitchen and a bedroom that have been divided right down the center. So the bed is divided in one in the bedroom and the kitchen table is divided in the other, but they're put in proximity and separated only inches apart. And you see those two worlds both colliding and you see them separated. And so it's a project that speaks to a world which is both divided and united simultaneously, because that's the interesting thing about borders to me is that there's a narrative around them and we can read them in different ways. And one narrative is that we can see a border as a demarcation that divides two countries, or we can see a border as a demarcation that unites two countries. But this is the place where the United States and Mexico come together. Or we can say that this is the place that divides those two countries. And I like to think about it as the first one, that borders are places that unite two countries. Also at the ASU Art Museum, there's also a video of some of your work as well, and including, um, and you'll have to uh, correct me on some of these groups, but I believe it's with a group called Alight in developing, building a horno for uh, a traditional horno for a community out of clay and mud. And I think your work always keeps coming back to building community around the ways that people have historically lived or, or ways that people could live now looking back on the ways that we once did. And so then I tie that to, to Joseph Kunkel, who you'll be speaking with uh, at this year's state conference. And Joseph leads the uh, sustainable I'm going to say it wrong again. Native Communities Design Lab. <laughs> Thank you. You got it. Yeah. And at Mass Design Group. And I'm curious what you see as the ways that you and Joseph overlap in some of your approaches to, to architecture and to impacting communities. 
Well, I would say that there are ways that we differ in practice, but we are similar in execution, maybe. And, and that is that Joseph is very much a practicing architect. And I work in the context of, I, I'm not sure what I would call my, my <laughs> I'm not working in an architecture firm. And so I'm operating in a, in a way that is both liberated from the responsibilities of an architecture firm, but also has the ability to, to move within spaces and do things very quickly that architecture can't move very quickly. And so I, I think that Joseph is laying down some very important architectural projects that are benefiting Native American communities in New Mexico by providing them not only housing, but also beautiful and sustainable housing that is designed in such a way that it helps those communities define themselves. And I think identity for Indigenous communities and communities in the borderlands in general is, is a very fraught topic. One of the scars or leftovers of a shifting border is the definition of one's own identity. And so I think architecture can help with that in many ways. And when, when you build a community, you are now part of a community rather than trying to individually define yourself as a Native American, as an indigenous person, as a mestizo, as a Mexican-American, as a Hispanic, as a Latino. And that gradient, as one poet recently wrote, Bobby Lefebvre, who's the state poet of Colorado, he wrote this beautiful poem about these kind of gradients of identities, these words. And he said, only a fool wouldn't see that all the waves are just part of a single ocean. And I'm not saying the poem exactly, but I thought that was really interesting and beautiful to think about how there's these attempts to kind of siloize identities, but really we are part of this ocean and it extends beyond those identities. I think in my case about the work in uh, refugee and migrant shelters along the U.S.-Mexico border, because we find that in those shelters, it's not single identity individuals who are coming. I'm working in shelters where you find people from Russia, from the Caribbean, from South America, from Mexico, who have different religious identities, who have different sexual orientation and identities. And they are brought together due to unfortunate circumstances and a lot of different unfortunate circumstances in a migrant shelter. And a community has to form in that place. And the experiment with Alight, they're formerly known as the American Refugee Committee, to just get a sense of what they do, was to think about how the Orno, this, this traditional cooking technology made of mud that actually migrated from Europe to the Americas and was embraced as cooking technology by the indigenous people of the Americas, could be used as a hearth around which community is formed. And so I have had this really great pleasure to come into shelters and build Ornos with the communities and uh, watch it evolve as something that becomes their passport to sharing their stories and also um, healing their traumas. I was really inspired by that video when I was watching it at the art museum and just seeing the way it impacted people and brought them together around food and warmth and tradition. 
And I think that that really ties in quite nicely to also wrap up our conversation for today, the conference theme of Inspire. And you just brought up a fantastic uh, example of something that's inspirational that is going on in our world that maybe not everybody gets to see all the time. I'm curious what else, whether it's in your own work, within work you're seeing out in the world, something else that's inspiring you right now, especially as we uh, are emerging from, you know, the last two years of a lot of turmoil. Is there anything that's striking you right now as inspirational? I mean, there's so many things that are inspiring in the world. I think that I'm actually very inspired by the students that I'm working with in the art department at UC Berkeley, because I have been part of the architecture department for decades. And now I am connected to the art department. And so I'm seeing new ways of thinking about the approach to making and representing the environment. And those are things that that architects do all the time. And when I think about the art department and the architecture department, and they're right across the sidewalk from each other on the UC Berkeley campus, I think how different those two worlds are, that it's actually like the United States and Mexico in some ways. (laughs) And there's this border in between, which is a sidewalk. And they're both worlds in which we have studio environments that we discuss our work in critical ways around group presentations, very visual, very much makers, and they're not connected. And I'm inspired about thinking how the world of architecture can be more artful and how the world of art can be a place of craft and making and skill that is directly related to the making of our environment. And so I'm just excited to think about a future trajectory for myself and maybe for those two departments to think about how they can come together in some way. And we experimented with a little bit with that last semester where we built an Orno with design students and art students in the back of the anthropology building. And uh, so we brought another player into that mix and it was a really amazing experience. So I guess I'm just inspired about thinking about this coming together, especially after a time of being pulled apart by the pandemic. Couldn't agree with you more. Ron, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Sean. Thanks again to Stephanie and Ron for joining us at Tracing Architecture. This episode is sponsored in part by AIA Phoenix Metro and the AIA Arizona State Conference, coming up on October 14th at Warehouse 215 in Phoenix. The early bird registration ends September 30th, so make sure to sign up. You can hear this episode and more at our website, tracingarchitecture.org, or on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever podcasts can be found. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can reach us at tracingarchitecture at gmail.com. We hope to see you at the conference, and thanks again for tuning in.